0: This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Ovid.tv is a streaming service unlike any other. While Netflix serves mainstream fare, Ovid.tv has hard-hitting social issue documentaries like America's In Transition, an Academy Award-nominated film that examines the roots of dictatorship, attempts at democracy, communist influences, and the U.S. role in countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua in the 1980s. From now until July 31st, listeners can head over to ovid.tv, that's O V I D.tv, and sign up with the coupon code JACOBIN at checkout to get 50% off the monthly subscription price for three months. That means you get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Sign up today to start watching bold documentaries like Chicago Boys, which explores the wave of neoliberal policies enacted in Chile by U.S.-trained economists during the Pinochet years. Ovid.tv is available on all of your devices, including Roku, Apple TV, Fire TV, your iPhone, Android, and any browser. Hello, I'm Micah Utrecht, managing editor of Jacobin Magazine. Back in May, the New York Times published a piece by Sidney Ember and Alexander Burns scrutinizing Bernie Sanders' support in the 1980s For the leftist movements in Central America that were facing brutal right-wing U.S.-backed forces or governments, as well as his efforts to establish ties between Burlington, Vermont and the Soviet Union. Now, it was a funny article because almost nothing in that article would have been a surprise to anybody who read his first book, Outsider in the White House. I hate to be a kind of, eh, well, if you had read the book, you would know, but it's true. If you read the book, Bernie is very open in that book about his anti-imperialist foreign policy as Burlington's mayor, of which his Central American solidarity was a key part. In any case, the article, and then Sidney Ember's subsequent Q&A with Bernie about his record on Nicaragua and the Soviet Union got a lot of attention at the time. But this isn't the last time we are going to see attacks on Sanders about the Sandinistas or about opposition to the right-wing dictatorship in El Salvador or any of the other aspects of Bernie's foreign policy as mayor of Burlington. And because we're going to keep hearing about Bernie in Central America, it's important to set the record straight about what exactly the U.S. was doing in Central America and what exactly Bernie was opposing. That's what Hillary Goodfriend writes about in her recent article for Jacobin, Why Bernie Was Right to Oppose U.S. Intervention in Central America. Hillary Goodfriend is a doctoral student in Latin American Studies at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México in Mexico City and a frequent contributor to Jacobin. Hillary, hello.
1: Hi, Micah.
0: So... This story that kicked off the latest conversation, a round of conversations about Bernie Sanders and his record on Central America came from a New York Times article in May that people are probably very familiar with and has been discussed quite a bit in the last uh, month and a half. Can you just briefly remind us of what Sidney Ember uh, and her Co-author wrote in the New York Times about Bernie Sanders and his record uh, regarding Central America. Uh, what what she was uh, what they were saying about his actions in the nineteen eighties and why that matters?
1: Sure. Well, it's a it's a pretty long and unpleasant read for anyone who's really familiar with the U.S. record in the region. But um, broadly, it's a discussion of Bernie's solidarity with the Sandinistas and uh, resistance to the US wars in the region um, that were being pushed by the Reagan administration at the time. When he was mayor of Burlington, Bernie was advancing sort of a progressive, I would say pretty radical foreign policy agenda from the municipality. And um, part of that involved traveling actually to Managua in 1985. Um, for a celebration of the Sandinista victory. He met with Daniel Ortega, he toured the country briefly. Um, and this was portrayed in the piece as somewhat outrageous. And in particular, they highlighted, the authors, the fact that at the rally he attended, there were anti-American, that's their word, chants, right? Um, something like, you know, you know, death to the Yankees. Um, And I think uh, the piece is is odd, I would say, in that it really tries to skewer Sanders for these policies. But at the same time, it's evident that they were wildly popular with his constituents at the time um, and led to successive reelections for mayor and eventually uh, him getting elected to Congress. They use kind of like a flippant tone and make him seem kind of like this hapless, like quirky oddball, but clearly his stance against U.S. imperialism resonated with the people he was representing.
0: And so in the follow-up to the article, Bernie did an interview with Sidney Ember, one of the two reporters who wrote it, and the big piece of that that drew a lot of headlines was that when she was pushing him on these anti-American chants, I think the exact language was, here, there, everywhere, the Yankee will die. Uh, and she was pushing him and asking, if you had heard those chants, would you have left the rally? And his implied response, so the implication of his response, was, of course, people were making chants like this. The U.S. was intervening in Nicaragua at the time. Can you, aside from what what was going on in, in the article, can you just talk about that background to what was going on, what the US, what was happening in Nicaragua and what US intervention in the country looked like?
1: Sure. I mean, I think Bernie, what he said in the in the article is, of course, there was anti American sentiment, you know, they were at war with the United States. Um, and I, what was so profoundly disturbing to me when I read that uh, interview, and what moved me to write this piece was that it appeared that the chants and the notion of anti American uh, slogans, was somehow more disturbing to the press than the actual atrocities that were provoking them. And so, you know, as Bernie alludes to in the interview, and as I try to lay out more fully in in the piece for Jacobin, the US was deeply engaged in the region at this time, and had been for decades, um, if not centuries. um, But at the very least, we could start with the 1954 coup against a democratically elected president in Guatemala, Um, that really kicked off the sort of uh, high-scaled Cold War engagement in the region and sort of uh, positioning Central America as a a sort of proxy space for the U.S. to fight out um, a series of conflicts with, uh, in its mind, at least in the popular imagination, the Soviet Union. And um, what we were seeing in the region at this time was um, a massive influx of U.S. funds arms, um, military advisors, and other kinds of security aid to fund these incredibly murderous and repressive regimes. So in Guatemala, that meant arming and funding these massacres in the indigenous Isil region that the UN would later deem to be a genocide. Um, That conflict at its close in 1996 had seen the death of more than 200,000 Guatemalans, not to mention the displacement of of millions more, um, and the vast majority of whom were indigenous people. And over 90% of those deaths were perpetrated by US backed forces. In El Salvador, the US was not only funding the regime, um, a military dictatorship, it was also supporting death squads. Um, And, you know, some of the atrocities your listeners might be familiar with because they even managed to make headlines in the United States, you know, the assassination of Archbishop Romero, who was recently canonized, actually, he's now a saint, Um, the murder of four U.S. church women, Um, also the the murder of six Jesuit priests and their housekeeper and her daughter in 1989. Um, But of course, there were many other massacres, students. Peasants, union workers and countless others who died in that conflict that saw about 80,000 Salvadorans murdered, and, uh, you know, 10,000 or so more disappeared. In Nicaragua, the Sandinista revolution in 1979 was successful in overthrowing the dictatorship and installed a socialist government that uh, you know began fighting to build a more equitable society. And so in the face of that victory, uh, what the Reagan administration immediately began doing was uh, putting together a paramilitary army that became known as the Contras, the counter-revolutionary sort of paramilitary forces that were trained uh, particularly in Honduras n- next door and basically waging a war against the governing Sandinistas to try and destabilize and overthrow them. When in 1983, the US Congress actually made this covert military action against the government in Nicaragua illegal, the Reagan administration resorted to illicit means and they began trying to uh, arm and fund this illegal war by any means necessary. So that meant allying themselves with some of the most unsavory characters of not just the continent, but the whole world. I mean, we're talking about Colombian and Mexican drug cartels. We're talking about Panamanian dictator, Manuel Noriega, uh, the Israeli Mossad, a whole host of conspiracies were being run out of the White House Uh, to try and circumvent this congressional prohibition against funding this paramilitary death squad uh, in Nicaragua. And the whole thing ended up blowing up in 1986, when one of the Contra planes was shot down. And it became a scandal that almost took down the whole Reagan administration. So it's it's hard to overstate the scale and brutality of the violence that the U.S. was supporting at the time.
0: Yeah. So just to sort of recap, I mean, it what was going on was obviously country-specific, but you know, in its country like Nicaragua, you had a U.S.-backed dictatorship that really perpetuated extreme inequality for a long time, and then they were overthrown by the Sandinistas. In El Salvador, you had a, a, because the U.S. wanted to avoid that happening, uh, the same thing that had happened in in Nicaragua in El Salvador, a brutal quasi-fascist dictatorship. Uh, And really, if you look into the history of these countries at the time, for me, on a personal level, learning this history was a lesson that there were basically no depths to which the United States would not sink in terms of human rights abuses, in terms of willingness to back the perpetrators of massacres. You look at the uh, massacre like El Mosote in El Salvador, where, what, over 800 people uh, were Slaughtered because the Salvadoran military was trying to uh, hunt down some of, of the Marxist guerrillas. I mean, you know, the, just the, the the sexual violence and and the the mass scale bloodletting, real industrial scale bloodletting. Uh, just, as you just said, can't be overestimated. And I feel like that is completely certainly missing in the New York Times coverage of uh, of these conflicts. I mean, they were talked about as if in this sort of fair and balanced way. I mean, you mentioned that the atrocities were overwhelmingly, no matter what country you were in in Central America, the atrocities were overwhelmingly uh, committed by the U.S.-backed forces. So this is the sort of backdrop uh, for what's going on at the time. And you've written also in Jacobin about uh, a broader movement that was taking place in uh, the United States at the time that these uh, these conflicts were playing out, uh, that clearly Bernie Sanders was a part of in his way as an elected official. So, can you talk about that broader context of the sanctuary movement at the time?
1: Sure. Well, one of the po- the points I try to make in the piece is that despite the portrayal uh, in the New York Times, Bernie was not uh, a lone dissident in supporting these movements for peace and justice in Central America and opposing uh, the US policy of war in the region. Um, The Central American uh, peace movement or the Central American solidarity and sanctuary movements of the 1980s were massive. um, And it was thanks to their tireless organizing that higher profile elected officials like Bernie Uh, could visit places like Nicaragua to show their support for these movements for justice, and of course, their opposition to US policy. And I think what's what's so uh, compelling about the Central America Solidarity Movement and all of the work folks were doing at that time from the United States is that we're talking about a really cross-border, internationalist movement to oppose US imperialism, But also support uh, the people resisting U.S. policy in Central America, but also those fleeing it uh, as refugees to the United States, which was what those involved in the sanctuary movement were doing. So at the same time that people were taking direct action to stop the uh, shipment of U.S. arms, to uh, Central America, or lobbying Congress or hosting mass protests to oppose u s bombs being dropped you know on El Salvador, um, there were also especially religious folks and um, migrant refugee led organizations that were uh, putting their, their bodies on the line to protect refugees who were coming over the border, uh, fleeing these, these violence that the U.S. was perpetrating in the region. Um, and I think that that, that legacy is, is really important, especially today when we think about how the struggles for um, you know, immigration justice are tied to struggles uh, against U.S. imperialism.
0: So what you're getting at is that there was a sanctuary movement, an active sanctuary movement, an active anti-intervention in Central America movement in Vermont at the time, and he was a part of that movement, and being a part of that movement really firmly put him on the side of opposing U.S. imperialism in the 1980s.
1: That's right. I mean, by any measure, U.S. actions in Central America— in the 1980s, and I think we can certainly say before and after, were absolutely reprehensible. And the only decent thing that, you know, millions of people in the United States and all over the world were uh, tirelessly doing was to oppose it. And I think that um, to suggest otherwise is to totally whitewash history. And it also doesn't allow us to understand the root causes of the mass migration that we see today from Central America. I think it's really important to see the US's bloody hands in the destabilization, the poverty, the violence in Central America today. And we can't do that unless we understand the role of the United States in the wars in the 1980s, it wasn't just that the US decided to throw its hand into these ongoing conflicts. These conflicts existed because the United States was funding them, was arming them, uh, and was perpetuating them. You know, Were it not for this Cold War anti-communist policy, we probably would have seen something more like uh, the Cuban and Sandinist- Sandinista victories Throughout the region, and you know, Central America would look a lot different today. It's hard to know that. Um, of course, it's a counterfactual. So, but certainly, um, the U.S. support for these repressive regimes, uh, in the case of Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and elsewhere, was the only thing that kept these incredibly unpopular despotic dictatorships in place.
0: So, I want to go back to the question about today's migrant crisis and refugee crisis in a second. Uh, but first, I just think it's important to note that th- it's it's no accident, it's no coincidence that this, uh, this line of attack is being leveled against Sanders right now. We saw it uh, to some degree in 2016 when he ran for president, uh, and I think we're going to—this this is not the last time that we have heard this line of attack on him, certainly as we get closer uh, to, uh, I mean, not just the— the, the presidential election if he makes it that far. But within the Democratic primary, I mean, uh, it's very likely that some of the more centrist candidates who are, he's running against uh, will level attacks about his record on Central America in the 1980s against him.
1: I mean, it's kind of shocking that uh, a paper like The New York Times would choose something like the Contra War uh, to try and attack Bernie for. I mean, we're talking about an an explicitly illegal conflict that nearly ended the Reagan presidency when it was revealed that funds for this illegal paramilitary war, um, you know, the soldiers of whom were committing atrocities, um, raping and, and murdering, targeting government infrastructure, attacking schools and clinics. The CIA mined the harbors of Nicaragua. All of this was happening illegally, and it was being financed in part by illicit arms sales to Iran um, and, of course, from uh, drug money, which is the part that we don't like to talk about very much. But this is, like, one of the most despicable um U.S. misdeeds on the books. So it's it's really hard to fault uh, anyone for uh, coming out against that kind of policy, that kind of brazen flouting of, of international law and human rights um, and, and U.S. protocol as well.
0: The interesting thing about this history, which the New York Times presents as you know, it's reporters doing some really deep digging into the archives of the of Bernie's archive in uh, the, at the University of Vermont, which it seems like they did. Uh, at least, if their pictures of the stuff in the archives are to be uh, taken as evidence of this. But if you read Bernie's first book, Outsider in the White House, he talks about doing all basically all of this stuff, uh, minus the uh, death to the Yankees chant, uh, and. He talks very explicitly about his efforts at trying to get the city of Burlington to have a foreign policy, basically, to try to use his office in such a way that it could fight back against U.S. imperialism. And so I think it's, uh, you know, not only is it important to know which side of history he was on and and which side is the correct one to be on, but it's also an instructive tale about how leftists at a local level in the United States can use their office for anti-imperialist purposes, uh, that you can, you know, even as a mayor of a very small city like Burlington, uh, try to make a difference in the kind of bloody imperial interventions that the U.S. is engaged in and abroad. And as we have this new wave of left elected officials in the United States, I think you know, of course, people are talking about things like Medicare for all, which are desperately needed, but it's also important to look back at this history and see what kind of uh, anti imperialist uh, uh, policies and 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 programs and 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 just approach that can be taken on a local level. Bernie's personal history as mayor of Burlington can kind of gesture in some directions that might be fruitful for those new left elected officials today
1: absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important that we reckon with this history if we want to think about what a left foreign policy would would look like in a potential um you know bernie presidency or or any kind of left presidency and certainly we have to start with looking at the ways that u.s activities in the region um and central america in particular have created the conditions for the crisis that we currently have on the u.s border Um, When we talk about the devastation of Central America um, at the hands of the US empire, we're talking about a bipartisan project that goes back decades, if not centuries. Um, And I think Honduras is the most important place to look um, to understand this right now. The 2009 coup against a democratically elected president who was starting to lean left was legitimated by Hillary Clinton's State Department under Obama. Um, and the dictatorship, the post-coup regime that continues to govern there is expelling thousands of its citizens um, who you know are currently forming the majority of the folks that are being caged, being murdered by U.S. and Mexican authorities uh, in the border areas uh, as we speak.
0: Yeah, can you briefly talk a little bit about that, about how the U.S. intervention in the region that we've been talking about led to the migrant crisis and refugee crisis that we have today, as well as various policies that the u.s. has pursued since the end of those conflicts
1: sure well i think you know in addition to the mass displacement that the wars generated um you know i used to live uh for several years in el salvador and actually in el salvador u.s bound migration in the post-war period in the 90s and 2000s actually exceeded that of the refugee flow during the war. And the folks that were migrating in the 90s and 2000s were doing so um, out of economic desperation. Um, And that's because, as I mentioned, the US in the 90s imposed a really dramatic neoliberal restructuring on Central America. This is the the shock doctrine that Naomi Klein talks about. You know, Um, these economies that were just emerging from a really dramatic and devastating uh, civil war were then subject to uh, structural adjustment policies, massive privatizations, deregulation, a free trade agreement with the United States, the Central American Free Trade Agreement (CAFTA) in the style of NAFTA before it with Mexico, um, all of which just further concentrated wealth in the hands of local elites and increasingly uh, transnational capital, and in particularly, you know, U.S. Uh, finance capital um, opened up uh, territories to extractive industries um, and further eroded um, labor protections, environmental protections, um, just the kind of wholesale neoliberal auctioning off of a region uh, to benefit a handful of oligarchic elites in Central America and of course US and transnational companies. Um, And so what that meant is that Huge portions of the population, working population of Central America, no longer had the means to feed themselves, and that's this is true today. And climate change is is just making it even worse. You know, for especially for folks who um, traditionally have lived off the land. So um, the U.S. hand can is is uh, can be seen all over the current crisis not just economically, but also the the sort of so-called security crisis or public security crisis of gang violence in the region, um, the history of the gangs that are so notorious in places like El Salvador is um, that they were formed, of course, on the streets of principally Los Angeles and in U.S. prisons. Um, when refugees from the U.S.-backed wars in the region were swept up in the U.S.'s racist criminal justice system and then deported promptly back to uh, to Central America in the 1990s. And um, these crises have been made worse by U.S.-backed, uh, iron-fisted security policies imposed by right-wing governments in the region, that have just further criminalized and marginalized poverty um, and uh, ended up radicalizing and empowering these gang structures um, that are increasingly tied up in organized crime and drug trafficking. So the sort of US backed Uh, militarization of public security in the region, the U.S. imposed neoliberal reforms, and of course uh, the U.S. funding and supporting of the armed conflicts in the region have all created these really unstable, um, really inequitable conditions uh, from which people flee every day.
0: Do you think that given everything that you just laid out about the US responsibility for the migrant and refugee crisis uh, in various ways that we are currently experiencing that that could be a part of the way that Bernie responds to and anybody else besides Bernie responds to attacks about uh, you know the sort of red baiting attacks on his history with the Sandinistas and being in Nicaragua etc that uh, not only was was it right to be on the side of the forces that were resisting U.S. imperialism, but in order to have a full conversation about the refugee crisis today, we, of course, should be letting people into the country, but we also should be talking about what U.S. imperialism has wrought uh, in the United States and in Central America. And that that, that should be a way to, that... that can pivot in a conversation like this to talk about this bloody history that the U.S. has.
1: Absolutely, and in fact, I think it's irresponsible not to. If you discuss this, like so-called migrant crisis, in the absence of any context of the conditions uh, that are causing people to flee the region, then uh, you're essentially playing into the hands of the right. Um, you know, we can't make this question of immigration about, you know, individual choices and responsibility, you know, these are structural problems with deep historic roots. And I think the first thing that any reasonable and responsible U.S. left politician can do is accept the U.S. role and to try and have some kind of accountability uh, and reparations for the havoc that uh, the U.S. empire has wreaked on Central America.
0: Hillary, thank you so much. Thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.